Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. And welcome to this Heritage Foundation podcast celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Index of Economic Freedom. I'm Ambassador Terry Miller. I'm the Mark A. Colacatronis Fellow in Economic Freedom here at Heritage, and I'm the Managing Editor of the Index. The Index of Economic Freedom has become the standard uh, for use in evaluating economic policies in countries around the world. The reasons for that are simple. Countries that have high scores on economic freedom tend to achieve very high levels of income and prosperity. The countries that increase their levels of economic freedom tend to have high growth rates, increasing their prosperity over time. The citizens of countries with high levels of economic freedom live longer, they enjoy better health and education, and they do a better job in protecting the environment than the citizens of other countries. Um, the rise in economic freedom over the past two and a half decades has undoubtedly played a very important role in the decline in global poverty. Global poverty rates now are just only about a third what they were 25 years ago. Economic freedom played a big role in that decline. Economic freedom matters. And the index is really the standard by which countries can measure their own performance or compare themselves, uh, their progress with other countries as well. So joining me today to discuss the index of economic freedom is Dr. Kim Holmes. Kim is the executive vice president of the Heritage Foundation and was a founding editor of the index of economic freedom. Welcome, Kim. It's good to be with you, Terry. I, uh, I brought with me a um, prop, Kim. Mm. Uh, this is the very first index uh, copy of the Index of Economic Freedom dating from 1995. Mm -hmm. You had a huge role in putting this together. That was an interesting time in the world. We had just uh, experienced the uh, destruction of the Berlin Wall, the lifting of the Iron Curtain across Europe. Mm. Um, the world's changed a lot since then. Uh, I was wondering, what uh, were the ideas that you had in mind? What were your hopes for the index when you began the project at that time? Well, it was a couple of things. As you mentioned, uh, the Cold War had ended a few years earlier, and so it was uh, obvious to everyone that there was a new birth of freedom around the world. And most of the talk about freedom at the time was about politics and about political freedom and about democracy and elections. And we realized that there was more to freedom than just politics. There's actually economic freedom, how much the government uh, regulates or interferes in the economy. Uh, Milton Friedman, uh, other economists have been talking about doing an index, global index like this for years. Uh, Ed Fulner and I had a, a short conversation in his office uh, in 1995. He asked me, can we do one of these indexes? And I said, I think we can. And so we set to work and, uh, and we produced it. Uh, the immediate interest that we had was foreign aid. Uh, 
There was a debate in the early 90s after the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union about what do you do with foreign aid. And we believed that if countries were measured uh, at, to see how free their economies were uh, and whether or not they were actually developing in a positive direction in terms of uh, not only economic freedom but also growth and prosperity, that we could give our aid agencies, U.S. Mm -hmm. aid agencies, useful information to see whether or not they should be giving aid to specific countries or not. Mm. That was the original uh, idea. It's grown into a much uh, larger project over the last 25 years, but that's the way we were thinking about it in 1995. Well, even with the aid uh, objective, um, I know the Millennium Challenge Corporation now uses uh, some of the index metrics in their own determinations for yeah aid eligibility. So yeah. I think that was a big success. Well, I think it was, but this is also where I need to give you credit because you've been editing the, the index <laughs> now for the last decade or so, and you've taken it to new heights, uh, for higher than we could have done 25 years ago. And I congratulate you for that huh. uh, uh, because of the impact that it's had. Well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, and a project like this where you're comparing countries one against another is potentially controversial. I can imagine some hurt feelings out there mm -hmm. among the countries that uh, didn't score well in the index. Mm -hmm. Did you have any negative reactions early on? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but the great thing was is it created a sense of competition. Uh, every country wanted to get a good score on the Index of Economic Freedom because if you had a good score, you could show investors uh, that they may want to come and invest in your, in your, in your country. Uh, we had instances where countries that were scoring very poorly, their ambassadors would come over to the Heritage Foundation, sit down in my office and scold me, and even give me a copy of the actual uh, wording, if you will, from the index. Well, this is what we really think we're doing. And so we knew we were having success when they were taking it that seriously. Uh, there was the rivalry between Hong Kong and Singapore for mm -hmm. one and two, which still goes on to this day. Uh, there were countries, uh, mainly in the developing area, developing world, who wanted to score well on the index. And that's what gave it its, its uh, I think, draw and attractiveness, uh, both in the media of these countries, but also in the way the governments even adjusted some of their policies uh, over time in order to get a better score. We have definite evidence that Hong Kong uh, for example, one year changed its policies because it got rated down in one area the previous year. That's exactly how the index was supposed to work. Mm. So they were afraid they were going to lose their number one ranking? Yes, they did. Well, they, we had an asterisk against them one year, again, warning. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there are some countries, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe and, and Asia, that have done very well in the index over time. I know. Uh, there are countries that started out as uh, repressed countries like Georgia or some of the Baltic countries uh, that had very low scores in the early days, but uh, now are considered mostly free in the index. Mm -hmm. That seems to me to be a remarkable um, uh, record of achievement for these countries. And uh, from what we hear, that was inspired in large part by, um, by this index. Yeah, it was, it was very true about the Baltic states. Uh, the Baltic states, after they liberated themselves from the, the Soviet Union, were they, were they were small countries, they wanted to associate with the West, but they also wanted to, knowing the fact that they were small and vulnerable, that they had to get their economies back in shape very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they were using many of the, uh, of the policies that we recommend in the index in order to make a rapid development towards capitalism and the free market. And uh, you're right, now they're doing quite well, their economies are, are doing well. 
uh, particularly if you compare them to other countries in the same region that have repressed economic policies. If you compare the two, it's obvious. The ones that are more economically free have more growth, higher per capita income, uh, higher standards of living. I mean, the evidence is absolutely uh, undeniable. Well, these days here in the United States, we hear a lot of talk about the virtues of socialism. I, I can't really believe that's made its way back into our political dialogue, but uh, nonetheless, that's what uh, you hear on TV yeah. or or in sometimes during political campaigns. Um, and some, some people talk uh, about countries like the Nordics, uh, whom they claim have followed socialist policies, or, or even China. Um, what does the index have to say about those countries over the years? Well, Denmark, uh, the Nordic countries, Denmark, Norway, to a certain extent Sweden, uh, actually score quite well on the index. Mm. Uh, it's a myth that they're actually socialist countries. They're not socialist countries. What they are is a very unique mix of economic policies. Uh, on the one hand, they'll have what we call a very high or heavy welfare state, and so the government spending is high on relatively small and uniform populations, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, which is it makes it easy for them to do that. But when it comes to trade, when it comes to tax policy, uh, encouragement investment, encouraging business development, they're actually very, very free. And so what they have figured out is that they want to create a free market capitalist country that, that like a, it's like the goose that lays the golden egg, mm -hmm. that lays this egg of wealth that they can tap back into and therefore redistribute, at least in that segment, uh, to their population. So it's a mixed economy, but it's not socialist. Uh, this is very different than an across-the-board socialist uh, country where in all 12 of the factors you would have heavy government intervention across the board. That's just not the case in the Nordic states. I get a lot of questions about China. And um, China, of course, has had an impressive record of economic growth, but from a very low base. Right. And so much of that is just an artifact of the arithmetic uh, that That's you true. use in determining growth rates. Uh, but uh, China also, because of its size and relative importance on the world stage, is seen as a competitor to this free market capitalist system that the index uh, champions, really. Right. Um, do you think China's performance justifies uh, people taking a second look? Or, or um, do we see enough to know that uh, and have confidence that uh, the things we're measuring in the index are, are the right things going forward? Well, Ch China scores very poorly on the index. Right. Uh, when you look across the board, uh, many of the sectors of their economy are heavily regulated. So the real question is, is why have they had this large economic growth? And you actually give them part of the answer already. It's not only from a low level. Uh, it's also because China, just like the Nordic situation, is also extremely unique. There's no other China. Hmm. Uh, they have a billion people. Uh, when the government gets into certain sectors of the economy, uh, it actually can grow from this low level. Uh, it can grow fast. But they're actually starting to reach the limits of that kind of state-managed growth in the last couple of years, and their growth rates are starting to go down. Hmm. So at some point, they're going to have to make a decision. Uh, I think that the, that the the question about the China model is both the political side, is the authoritarian model uh, applicable, uh, and does it compete with us? I think in the long run it doesn't compete with the Western model. Uh, more economic freedom, more political freedom in the long term is more sustainable politically and economically. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, it's only going to be attractive to authoritarian dictatorships. It is attractive to them. It is an alternative. But I, I'll put a bet on our side uh, any day compared to China. 
One of the things that um, has been a pleasant surprise for me in this job is the extent to which uh, the international community, um, community's acceptance of the principles of economic freedom that we measure in this index are so widely accepted and endorsed. Um, as you know, I spent many years at the United Nations really fighting the battle on behalf of the free market system against uh, socialists and communists. And, um, at that time, I, I thought that competition might go on forever, but it seems to me that now, in many respects, uh, the ideas of economic freedom that are included in this index have really triumphed and, um, and can uh, dominate the dialogue and thinking moving yeah. forward. There's no doubt. I mean, over the last 25 years, the, uns the great untold story is the, is the success of a global capitalist system. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of talk about gloom and doom, climate change. The whole world's going to end, but that one story gets buried. Uh, and the other story is is that these other countries, you've given all the statistics, poverty is down, uh, per capita income globally is up, growth is up, and it's clear that the, that the countries that have more economic freedom are growing faster than those that don't. All that evidence is absolutely clear. So the reality is clear. The problem is it's a perception of politics. Even in this country, why are we talking about socialism being an option? It's like talking about feudalism in the 19th century, you know, and uh, that we had left feudalism way behind, and it showed itself to be an absolute, absolute failure. Why are we talking about it today? Well, that's because I think socialism is uh, when young, particularly when young people in polls talk about socialism, they don't really know what it is. They don't know. They don't know that it represents Stalinist Russia or even uh, Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution in China. It's a symbolism of something uh, very vague and almost mythological. Uh, and so, uh, uh, really, if you look at all of the great challenges in the newspapers every day, what are people fighting about? They're fighting about identity politics. They're fighting about immigration. They're fighting about climate change. They're not fighting about the fundamentals of the economic system in this country, and yet mm -hmm. they call it socialism. Yeah. It's really not about socialism at all. It's such an anachronism. It's just amazing that we even use that term. Well, you mentioned climate change, which is one of the most uh, talked about issues these days. And uh, the basic discussion there seems to be between those who really would kill the capitalist system, um, cause us to have much lower levels of growth, production, uh, consumption in our economy, um, in order to uh, somehow stop uh, what they fear is going to be serious global warming in the future. And those who believe if we allow innovation and uh, progress to continue at the same pace or even accelerated from what it's been in the past, um, our children and our grandchildren will be much better positioned at that point, much richer, much more capable uh, to deal with any challenges that, that they may face. Is there a lesson from the index in this? Yes, there is. If you go to any country in Africa, or you go into any either existing socialist or communist country, you're going to find an environment that's devastated. Hmm. Uh, and the African countries, they have low economic freedom scores. You're going to find right. that their environment is devastated. If you want to find clean environments, you go to countries in, in Western Europe uh, and in the United States where they have the free market system, economic freedom, that not only produces the wherewithal and the economic prosperity that allows you to use the money to solve these environmental problems, but also, as you said precisely, it allows for um, uh, entrepreneurship, 
uh, flexibility, diversity, having people come together and solving the problems through the private sector is the best way to preserve the environment. This idea of a Green New Deal or Green Socialism, whatever you call it, where the government gets together and mandates everything without any respect whatsoever for how it's going to be done properly or done through the proper technology is just a, a complete throwback in time. If you want to ruin the environment, just put the government in charge. Well, the index is celebrating its um, 25th anniversary this year. And as you look forward to the next 25 years, um, how do you see the index project fitting into the strategic goals and the, uh, of the Heritage Foundation going forward? Well, one of the, uh, the major strategic goals we have this year that we, uh, the, uh, the board has approved is we want the Heritage Foundation to be a policy innovator. We want it to be the lead in the policy world. Left, right, center, it doesn't matter. We want to come up with ideas that solve problems. And the index of economic freedom is like a, a, almost an endless source of a proving ground for what works and what doesn't work, uh, but also from going around the country and looking at the, country, the countries that score well, and you look at, for example, how they're doing in the environment, and then you have somebody go in and study what it is they did. I mentioned the Baltic states, for example. Uh, some other countries came in with flat taxes and, yeah. and innovative ideas on taxation. It's just like a, uh, an endless source of experimentation uh, that you can show over time whether it works or not. And so we're hoping that, that as we do more of these editions uh, uh, of the index, that we can come up with new policy innovations on what works across the board, both in social and economic policy. Well, we've seen uh, amazing progress throughout the world in the 25 years that the Heritage Foundation has been measuring economic freedom. And I'm confident that uh, our successors in these jobs 25 years from now uh, will also be able to point to uh, amazing progress for humanity, for the United States and the other free countries of the world as they embark on this great new adventure in uh, the promotion of freedom and economic prosperity for all. Thank you very much.